stuff, yeah. Good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Luke. Uh, great to have you here with us this morning. Uh, and good to be able to start wrapping up this Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at. Um, I was talking to a guy this week who is a urologist. And if you want to go uh, to a funny website, go to his promotional website, Make America Pee Again. It's really funny. Um, and I told him, I said, man, if this urology thing doesn't work out for you, you know, you have a future in marketing, I think. Uh, this is pretty good. And he wanted to know about my preaching and my sermons. He said, well, do you, you, know, you like start all your sermons with a joke, right? I said, no, no, I don't. And he seemed really disappointed in that. And if that's the case, he'd be very disappointed in Jesus. Because if you've been with us through this series of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not start with a joke. Uh, Jesus started back in chapter 5, verse 3, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when everything in your life's going wrong. How's that for a joke? Right, that's not a funny story. That's not a crafty little thing. And, and Jesus begins with that sort of intensity. And uh, what we're looking at here today and the next week is going to conclude our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And what you'll see is that Jesus starts and he finishes the sermon the same way. Both are very intense. And so what we're looking at here today, we've titled The Bottom Line. Jesus is bringing it home. Jesus is wrapping it up. Jesus is wanting us to make sure that we get what he's saying. The audience is leaning in. They're paying attention. Jesus is bringing it home. And here's what he says to bring it home. Here's the bottom line. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is bringing it home. Jesus has been in this sermon uh, telling us about the values of the kingdom, telling us about what's important in his kingdom. And here now he gives the bottom line. He says, here's the thing that sums up the law. It sums up the prophets. This sums up the whole Old Testament teaching is this. Do uh, unto others what you would have them do to you. That's the law and the prophets. The bottom line here is that the way of Jesus is a beautiful but a difficult way. It's a beautiful way. Now, what's interesting is we hear these words, this golden rule, right? Have you ever heard this called the golden rule? The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We think that's a beautiful thing because we've been shaped by a few thousand years of Christianity influencing Western culture. But when you really think about it, this doesn't make sense. If you embody the kingdom of the world, this doesn't make sense at all. This is a very, very difficult thing. Jesus is calling us to love. He's calling us to love one another as we would love ourselves. Now, a number of weeks ago, we looked at this quote by uh, Paul Tripp, and I want to share it with you again. This is your pop quiz. Anybody remember this quote? If we've been living by this quote, uh, here's what uh, Paul Tripp says as he defines love. He says, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. We went through that a number of weeks ago and we said, what could happen in our world? What could happen in our families? What could happen in our schools and in our workplaces if we began to live like this? This is what Jesus is calling us to, is a, an, a life of sacrificial love. And it's a life that makes no sense outside of the kingdom of God. See, because outside of the kingdom of God, we don't say do unto others as we would have them do to us. Here's what we say instead. We say first, do unto others what they've done to you. 
That's the way the world operates. That's the kingdom of this age. Do unto others what they've done to you. If they hit you, hit them back harder. Jesus says, no, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other. Do unto others what they've done to you. If they hurt you, you hurt them back. If they speak against you, you speak worse against them. That's not the kingdom of God. We might also say this way in the kingdom of the world. We'd say, well, do unto others if they do good to you. You We kind of make it conditional. Yeah, I want to be good to people, but as long as they're good to me. And if they do good to me, I'll do good to them. And if they scratch my back, I'll scratch theirs. The other way the world says it is do unto others so that they will do good to you. So our love is expecting payback. Right, that's the way the kingdom of the world works. I'll, I'll do this for you if I kind of have a sense that you'll do it back for me. And Jesus says, no, you have to love even your enemies, he said back in chapter 6. And here he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that Jesus came to do what the law and prophets asked us to do and we could never do, and that as we are transformed by the power of Jesus, then we have the ability to begin to love. And in that way, then we fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, you may hear that. You may say, gosh, and just think about this for a second. You've heard so many times the golden rule. You've told your kids, hey, do to your sister as you would have her do to you. You've heard it so many times that you've stopped thinking about what it actually means. Think about it. How much do you want someone to care about your hurt? Care that much about theirs? How much do you want people to be encouraging to speak words of kindness to you? Do that for them. I mean, this is a huge, this is a high bar, and we might hear it and go, well, gosh, that sounds really, really hard. And so Jesus continues and says, yeah, it is really hard. Look at verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus often does this in his teaching. He likes to make a contrast. He likes to say, hey, there's this and there's this. He's going to do it actually a few different times in here. Uh, He's going to close the sermon saying, you know, there's a house built on a rock and there's a house built on the sand. And he's going to compare these things. And here Jesus says, hey, listen, there are two basic approaches. And one approach is a wide path with a big gate and a lot of people are on it. That's the kingdom of the world. My kingdom, Jesus says, is a narrow way. It's a hard way. Few find it. He says, listen, if you want to come into my kingdom, you're welcome to come. I want you to come. Please come. Just understand the way's narrow and it's hard and not many people are going to find it. Why aren't many people going to find it? Why is it so narrow? Well, I view it like this. It's so narrow that you can only squeeze through as long as you're not holding on to anything. And if you're holding on to your pride, you're not going to fit through. If you're holding on to your sin, oh, you're not going to fit through. If you're holding on to your need for a comfortable life, not going to fit through. 
If you're holding on to, well, I want Jesus, but I also want this really great thing that the world offers me, you're not going to fit through. The only way to get through is with you humbled and acknowledging that Jesus is the way. This is also why it's difficult. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. This is where uh, we'll look at in a couple weeks in our next series. Jesus said to his disciple Thomas, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. That's why it's hard. Because we want to come in with Jesus and my good works. Jesus and my worldly values. Whatever it is, we want Jesus plus. And Jesus says, no, it's just me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Therefore, it's a difficult way. The way of Jesus is a beautiful and difficult way. It's a way of love that is possible because he has loved us even better than we'd ever deserve. And it's possible when we fix our eyes only on him and come to him and him alone. Now, in the rest of this passage, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us two ways that we can get derailed. He's going to say, listen, this is a hard road. The path of love, the path of sacrificial love is a difficult path. You're only going to make it if you focus on me because I'm the one who's loved you like this. But there's a couple things you need to look out for because these things are going to derail you. And so uh, what he's going to tell us that can derail us are false prophets and false professions. False prophets and false professions. So the first thing he describes is false prophets. And look at verse 15. Here's the thing that can derail you from the narrow gate and the narrow path. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Hmm. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus is saying, hey, the, the first thing you need to watch out for are these false prophets. They're false. They, they come saying, this is what the Lord says, but what they are saying is not what the Lord is actually saying. That's what makes them a false prophet. Now, Jesus says, hey, there's a challenge here, is outwardly they look like sheep. Outwardly they look sweet. They look kind. They look innocent. But inwardly, there's something totally different. Inwardly, they are a ravenous wolf, a destructive wolf. It's interesting, too, this word ravenous. Look at that word ravenous in verse 15. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. That word elsewhere almost all the time is translated swindlers. So in other words, one of the big motivations for false prophets is money, is cash. They want to develop a following so that people will pay them and maybe even sow their very best seed so that they can reap a big harvest themselves. And so how do we discern this? If they look good on the outside but inside and we don't have a, you know, an ability necessarily to always read people's hearts, how do, we, how do we determine this? Well, Jesus says there's a way to determine this is to look at fruit. He says, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that says, hey, this is business. Like, if you're a, a false prophet, you're going down. 
And if you're following a false prophet, that's going to lead you into a destructive path. He says, verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So how do we, as we seek to pursue Jesus on the path of sacrificial love, and it's a difficult path, how do we avoid getting into other kinds of teaching that are going to distract us? How do we recognize it? How do we, how do we recognize the bad fruit? Well, it, it, just think about the, the illustration of fruit here. How many of you have uh, an ornamental orange tree? Anyone, you know what those are? I only see a few hands. A lot of you probably have them. And you've wondered, how come the oranges on my tree are so terrible? If any of you have a tree, you're like, yes, it always tastes bad. Okay, here's why. You have an ornamental orange tree. See, in Arizona, we like the smell of the orange trees. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. We like the look of the orange trees. And so people have somehow, I don't even know how this works, there's these ornamental orange trees. They look just like a regular tree, orange tree, but when you take off the taste of the fruit, it is terrible. It does not taste like, you know, the Tropicana commercial where they stick the orange, right, the straw right into the orange. Like that, as a kid, I can't tell you how many times I tried to do that. <laughs> like, Mom, these straws, they won't go in all the way. I re- that looks so good. And, and the way, you only, this is amazing, the only way you can tell the difference in these trees is by tasting the fruit. What is the result? Because when the tree's growing, it looks the same. When spring comes and the blossoms come, well, it smells the same. But it's only when you look at, here's the end result, that you're able to go, okay, that is not a real tree. That's not a real orange tree. Jesus says, hey, you've got to look at the fruit. So, so we have to look at the fruit of the things we hear. I've got to tell you, one of the things that I hope you do, um, not in a hypercritical way, but in just a wise way, is I hope you listen to the things that I say. I hope you listen to the things that Josh and our other preachers say. And I hope you evaluate that in light of the scriptures. I hope you watch our lives. I hope you try to gauge whether what we're saying is true with how we're living, and I hope you try to see that the outcome of the things we teach actually lead not towards self-aggrandizement, but towards sacrificial love. I hope you evaluate that. It just breaks my heart sometimes to see Christians who have no discernment. It's like if it felt good, if it was positive, if it was encouraging, they're in. Jesus says, hey, the wolf isn't going to come to you in a wolf outfit. He's going to come to you with a big smile and a positive, encouraging sheep outfit. So you've got to look at the fruit. Well, here are some questions that can help us evaluate the fruit of various teachings we hear. And, and here's, here's something I think we ought to do, is when Jesus is saying, what's the fruit of the teaching? I think we have to look at it in this particular context and go, is what we're hearing different people teach about, does it lead to the kinds of things Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, or does it lead to something else? So I just went back through the Sermon on the Mount quickly and said, what are the things that Jesus has been teaching? What kind of fruit does Jesus want to see happen as a result of this sermon? And if the things we're teaching or if the things other pastors or people on TV or people on the radio or people on the internet, if there's other things they're teaching that don't lead to the things that Jesus' teaching leads to, beware, beware. So here's one question. Does it lead to self-denial or self-indulgence? Does the person's teaching 
even if they're trying to use the Bible, does it lead to self-denial or self-indulgence? Because Jesus said, listen, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus didn't say, blessed are all those who have all their earthly wants met in this world and that's what God's about. So if you're hearing a teaching that is a kind of prosperity gospel, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, or maybe it's even like a psychological prosperity gospel, you'll just be happy all the time. Be careful, because that's not what Jesus taught. Another thing, does, does this teaching, the teaching you're evaluating in any given moment, does it lead to upholding Scripture or diminishing Scripture? Because Jesus said back in chapter 5, Verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So as you listen to teaching, does it make the Bible seem more important or unimportant? Does it make you go, oh my gosh, these are the very words of God. I need these words. These are breathed out by God. This is my life. This is my hope, is to hold on to the promises of God. Or does it make you go, yeah, I don't need it. You got to evaluate the fruit there. I, I often just notice, by the way, I mean, I, as you can imagine, I study preaching and I study preachers. I think there's a difference between using the Bible and preaching the Bible. And I just want you to know, my ambition is to try to preach the Bible. Not to use the Bible to say what I want to say, but to preach what I think the Bible is saying. That's what we're trying to do. Here's another question as we evaluate teaching is, does it lead to resisting sin or to minimizing sin? Does it lead to taking sin seriously, the scripture seriously, sin seriously, and saying, man, sin is a real problem. Sin is wrecking my life. Sin is hurting the people in my life. Sin is crushing our world. It needs to be resisted. It needs to be fought. It needs to be battled. Or does a teaching that you hear listen make you go, eh, sin, you know, everybody does it. it you know, it's not that big of a deal. Because Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, over and over is saying, hey, you heard that, that the sin that you're supposed to resist was here. I'm actually telling you it's here. You heard that you shouldn't uh, murder anybody. I'm telling you, you shouldn't be angry. You heard, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, the bar is way higher than you think. Jesus' teaching doesn't minimize sin, and so good, fruitful teaching won't minimize sin either. Here's a th another question. Does this teaching lead to sincerity or to hypocrisy? Does it lead to sincerity or hypocrisy? Remember in Matthew chapter 6, and this is, by the way, I'm just kind of going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't been here, you're getting a good review of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Does it lead to sincerity or hypocrisy? In chapter 6, he said, listen, th th there's people who they pray and they fast and they give, but they do it to be seen by others. Here's what I want. I want you to do it. I, I, I'm not saying don't pray, don't fast, and don't give. I want you to do those things. But do it to be seen by your heavenly Father. Because then you'll receive your reward from him. 
There are teachings, there are churches, there are environments where what ends up happening is because there's such an emphasis on the externals, it leads to hypocrisy. And everybody's acting like they're keeping the rules and they're doing it great and kind of patting themselves on the back. And yet nobody is close to the heart of God. Jesus says, watch out for that. Don't become that. By the way, I just want to say this at this moment. Here's why this matters for us. Because I look around this room and go, I should, have said, I should have said this a few minutes ago. I'll say it now. I look around this room. Most of you are here when you go to church. You're here now, right? I just think it's funny whenever we go, if you're here today and... It's like, well, who else are we talking to, right? You're here today. But I look around, a lot of you, this is your church. And so here's the thing. I'm not saying, hey, you know what? Come up with, here's all the ways to load your gun to go bash all the other churches out there. Okay? Here's what I'm saying. Churches don't just overnight go from healthy and doctrinally sound to unhealthy. They drift there. And they drift there often because the people in the church have itching ears that they want scratched and the preachers are all too willing to please man instead of please God and the church drifts there. So I'm telling you these things because I think it's helpful to go through what does Jesus mean when he says watch out for this kind of teaching and mostly I want you to watch out for it here. Now now get that. I'm also not saying become hypercritical. (laughs) Point out everything you possibly disagree with. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to just raise our discernment factor as a church so that we can be healthy and we can be vibrant and strong. Here's another thing that I think we need to evaluate as we think about evaluating the fruit of teaching is, does it lead to using money or loving money? Using money is great. We all have money. Money's a, a... perfectly fine thing in God's creation. But when we love it and it becomes our treasure and now our our heart follows that treasure and we begin to store up treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven and we begin to love money and think that the love of money is the answer. No, the scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so if you hear teaching that makes you, that, that feeds into your consumeristic desire for more, beware. Next question, does this teaching lead to humility or being hypercritical? Because we looked at this last week in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you use, it'll be used against you. And you're not even good enough at this because you'd want to point out the speck in your brother's eye. You forget the plank that's in your eye. Does the teaching of our church lead us to being humble or to being hypercritical? That's the, that's the danger I was trying to address just a minute ago, is you can just get all these questions and go, aha, 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 that's what's wrong with Christianity out there, but we have it right. <laughs> no. No, it should lead to being humble. One, I've heard it said this way, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It slowly kills you, and you don't even know it. And if pride is what bubbles up in our hearts, it's going to lead to a destructive fruit in our lives. 
couple more questions. Does our teaching lead to trusting God or manipulating God? Because Jesus said, listen, I want you to trust like a child asks their father. I just want you to ask and to seek and to knock. But sometimes teaching can make it seem like, well, in order to really get answers from God, we've got to do this particular thing. I remember being in Israel, and I remember this was absolutely one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life. I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is uh, built uh, basically on top of the site where Jesus was crucified. And there's a big slab there in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher where tradition has it that the body of Jesus was laid at some point. Who knows whether it's true. But we're there, I'm with this tour group, I'm literally less than 20 feet from where Jesus was crucified, from where Jesus was alienated by his heavenly father so that we could be brought in to the father's love. And at that very moment, a tour group gets out a bunch of handkerchiefs and starts rubbing them on the slab because the Sunday school class back home wants to have a handkerchief that's been blessed. I didn't know whether to cry, I didn't know whether to scream, I didn't know whether to try to like tear the steel thing, the, the stone thing out of the ground. I figured that wasn't gonna work. Because <laughs> I'm going, hey, everything you need for a blessed life happened 20 feet from here. You have a father that has opened himself to you. You don't need a handkerchief. You don't need holy water. You don't need a potion. Trust in the Father who loves you. You don't have to manipulate him. You don't have to work him over. He loves you. He's for you. And last question. Does all of our teaching lead to love? Right? Because that's what Jesus said in verse 12. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Does our teaching lead to love? Does our gathering in our small groups lead to love? Does our gathering as a church lead to love? We can get derailed very quickly by all of these teachings that sound good and sound interesting and boy, I've never thought of it that way, but in the end, if it doesn't lead to humility, if it doesn't lead to love, if it doesn't lead to self-denial, if it doesn't lead to greater seriousness about obedience and greater love for the scriptures, it's not good for us. And it's not gonna help you go down the narrow way of loving others that Jesus calls you to. All right, here's the second, the last way to get derailed from this narrow path. Jesus talks about it in verse 21. It's false professions. False professions. Jesus says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I told you Jesus is ending with intensity. There's not a lot of yucks here. This is serious. This is as serious as eternal life and death. Are you paying attention? Do you get what Jesus is saying? 
Jesus is saying that your professions, your decisions, your calling me Lord, Lord, doesn't mean that much. Jesus is saying your activities, even your ministry activities, your good works, your powerful works, doesn't mean that much. Do you get that that's what he's saying? Look at this closely. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now get this. Jesus here is not talking about the kind of pagan atheist people out there who want nothing to do with Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus here is saying there are people who call me Lord. On the last day, they would say, Lord, Lord. He's saying some of those people are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a room like this, we have a lot of people who would call Jesus Lord. Which means we need to perk up. This is not like, uh, oh, boy, my, uh, my atheist nephew ought to listen to this. No, 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 this is like I ought to listen to this. Jesus is saying there are people who call Jesus Lord who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say that when they say, well, wait, 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 and they give an explanation, do you know what it's going to be filled with? It's going to be filled with more ministry activity and power than any of us have ever done. Do you get it? Notice, they don't say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not volunteer on Thanksgiving at the soup kitchen? Like that might be one of the best works any of us would try to point to. What do they say? Lord, Lord, verse 22, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Anyone in the last month cast out a demon? I've been in services where someone did. It's pretty rare. Right, so these are people who have the profession. They know Jesus, Lord, Lord. And they seem to have the activity. They're doing ministry. They're doing all the right stuff. And Jesus still says, what's his answer? And this is the key, right? Because at this point, some of you are going, oh my gosh, I'm in big trouble. And here's the thing. You might be. I'm not going to tell you you are. I'm not going to tell you you're not. You might be. So you need to pay attention. Because if you're thinking, wow, I've never done stuff like that. I, I've, never, I've never done those kinds of amazing miracles and works. What hope is there for me? You have to listen to what Jesus says. You have to listen carefully to what Jesus says. G- get this. Jesus is not just going, you know, duck, duck, damned. Like, duck, 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 damned. Oh, you're out. Like, hey, you did all the right stuff, but, you know, coin flip, you lost. Sorry. No, no, there's a reason here. There's a reason why Jesus can look at a person who has this great profession and this powerful ministry and say, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. It's not arbitrary. There's a reason. So look at the reason. Do you see the reason in verse 23? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. We have never had a relationship. You've known who I was. And you've done a lot of things that you thought I might like. But we don't know each other. How do we know? 
We don't know each other. He says, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What will be the indication that they don't know God? That they don't know Jesus? It's not all the good things they do. In fact, what it is, is that they continue, even though they make this great profession with their mouth, and they do all kinds of big, impressive things in front of people, in the private of their own heart, they don't know the Lord, and they are workers of lawlessness. They do enough to be seen by others. They do enough to seem impressive, but in their heart, they are disobedient. Right? Notice what Jesus said in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Now, who has Jesus been talking to throughout this whole sermon? Who's been kind of in the crosshairs? It's been the religious leaders. It's been the Pharisees. It's been people who go and pray on street corners to be seen by other people. It's people who go, well, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody, and I'm pretty religious. I try to do all the right stuff. It's the same people here. Jesus is saying one of the best ways to avoid knowing him is to get religious. Because if you get religious... You can kind of think, you know, I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm paying my taxes. I can, you, know, you can kind of keep him at arm's length. Jesus said, I don't, I don't want to be at arm's length where you try to manipulate me with your good works. I want to know you. Do you know Jesus? Here's what Charles Spurgeon, uh, the prince of preachers, here's what he said. If you do not desire to know him better then you love him not, for love always cries nearer, nearer. Is there a pattern in your life where you go, I, I, just, I just love Jesus, and I fail him, and I disobey, and I let him down, but I want to be nearer, and I want to be nearer, and I want to be nearer, and I don't always want to be nearer, but even when I don't want to be nearer, I, deep down I know I do want to be nearer. Or is this a kind of game where you're just trying to pull the right levers and pay the right things so that you get your get out of hell card? Jesus says, if, if that's all you're doing, you don't know me. Do you know Jesus? And do you obey Jesus? Get this, not perfectly. And not like a slave, where it's like, oh, I guess I have to. But like a son, like a child obeys a father. Do you obey Jesus? Do you want to love people? Do you want to serve? Do you want to give? Do you want to pray? Not just to look good in front of other people, not to just absolve your conscience, but because you actually love him. Listen, I can't tell you the answer to that. Only God in his spirit can tell you the answer to that. Do you know him? Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep, how do I know if I'm one of God's sheep? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you know Jesus' voice? 
Have you been able to distinguish Jesus' voice from the voice of a preacher or the voice of a movement or the voice of a religion and you've been able to just hear Jesus' voice? And he knows you and you follow him. This is sober. This is serious. And here would be my great hope as I just kind of try to wrap this up. For those of you who are at this moment thinking, oh man, I don't know. Do I know him? I want you to, as hard as it is, I want you to lean into that. Lean into that. Because what Jesus is warning about here is the kind of self-deception that assumes everything's okay. So no, lean into it and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, am I one of your sheep? Lord, am I hearing your voice? Maybe do some evaluating and say, are there areas of my life that I've just too easily said, well, it's okay, it's just how I am, and I'm not really fighting this sin in my life. I'm not really obeying the Lord in that area. And evaluate it and lean into it and ask yourself the hard questions. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians that we should test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And the biggest test, if you read the book of 1 John, is the test of love. Are you growing in love? Are you growing in the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't demand payback or that the other person's deserving? And evaluate yourself through that. Don't evaluate yourself through activity Right? That's what the people, well, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do this? That's not the thing to evaluate. Don't evaluate yourself just in theology because they had the right profession. Even the demons know who Jesus is. Evaluate yourself through love. Am I growing in love? Am I growing in sacrificial love? Am I imitating my true shepherd, Jesus? And for others of you who you hear this, and because, because you are sensitive to the Spirit, you're taking this really seriously. And as you evaluate it, you go, yeah, I do know his voice. I do know his voice. Here's what I want you to do. Thank him. Thank him. Because it's not because your ears were better. It's not because you were smarter. It's because in his grace, he allowed you to see that the only path to the Father is through him. And so this next season for you should be a season of rejoicing and a season of gratitude and a season of thanksgiving and a season of resolve to continue to hear the voice of your master and to obey him with love. Let's pray.